Welcome to What Christians Should Know, hosted by Dr. Elijah Sadoffel. This podcast equips you with clarity and meaningful answers about God, the Bible, and your Christian life. Now, here's Dr. Sadoffel. This is the second episode on prayer. To recap what we went over in Part A. One, we defined prayer as personal communication with God. Prayer is the outward expression of the inward faith that we have in God. Two, we clarified that prayer is not about getting, it's about becoming. Prayer is not a transactional process exclusively designed to grant your requests. Prayer is a transformational process that exclusively transforms you and in turn brings you closer to the Lord. Three, we discussed why we pray and why we pray is primarily to glorify God. Four, generally, we also discussed how to pray biblically. How follows the acronym ACTS, which stands for first adoration and prayer, followed by confession, then thanksgiving, and then supplication. Today, we will elaborate further on how to pray, and in doing so, we will talk about God's will and to discern God's will for your life. Our scripture focus will be Matthew 6, verses 9 to 13. These verses are commonly known as the Lord's Prayer. There, Jesus himself teaches his disciples how to specifically pray. In Matthew 6, 9 to 13, Jesus says, Pray then in this way, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Note that Jesus did not say, pray this, as in pray these exact words. Rather, he said, pray in this way, as in this is the blueprint, but not the actual house. The first line of the Lord's Prayer is, Our Father who is in heaven, which opens the prayer in adoration. As R.C. Sproul notes in his book, The Prayer of the Lord, Jewish authors never called God Father in their written prayers until the 10th century A.D. In contrast, Jesus almost always referred to God as Father when he prayed. Hence, in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus invites us all to address God as Father, which points to a familial, close, intimate relationship. Technically speaking, Jesus is the only begotten Son of the Father, and thus Jesus is the only one who can properly call God Father. Mark 14.36 Yet, as Paul writes in Galatians 4.6, the Holy Spirit works in us to turn us toward God and say, Abba, Father, a term of endearment. So when we pray, we are not talking to an impersonal it detached from our reality, but to a loving parent who has adopted sons and daughters into his family. Resultantly, the adopted call God our Father to represent the head of the large family of redeemed people. Interestingly, our Father draws our attention to God and to our neighbor because God is never mine. He's ours. There are countless others who call him Father as well, and they are our brothers and sisters as a function of adoption. So when we pray our Father, we are being oriented to the two greatest commandments, to love God and to love your neighbor. Notice that we are encouraged to call the patriarch Father, not Mr., Sir, or Commander, but Father. 
This conjures up the idea of a strong, nurturing relationship that all humans can relate to and purposely does not invent a new type of name for God that is foreign to human understanding. It must also be said that there are many natural fathers who abuse their position, but again, our father is not the exact same as an earthly father because our father is a dad who is in heaven. This is what separates the one divine father from earthly fathers and their inherent human flaws. On the one hand, God is our father, and in this there is nearness. But on the other hand, God is in heaven, and there is a simultaneous awayness. But even though the Lord has an otherworldliness about him, we can still come into his presence at any time through our prayers and be near to him. The next line in the Lord's Prayer is, Hallowed be your name. This is a line of adoration. The word hallowed is translated from a Greek word which means to make holy, purify, acknowledge, to separate from profane things, and dedicate to God. Basically, God does not need you to tell Him that His name is holy, but by Jesus telling His disciples to pray in this manner, He instructs us to make an appeal that God's name will be treated with esteem, regarded as sacred, and treated with veneration. Hallowed be your name also speaks to God's character, so this also seeks the person of God to be hallowed in the hearts, minds, and speech of all people. We know from the third commandment in Exodus 27 that God takes his name very seriously, and thus so should we. Therefore, the first formal line of the Lord's Prayer after the opening is a proclamation for his name to be honored, which sets the tone for what is to follow. One may ask what the big deal is if God's name isn't respected. Well, disregard for God's name leads to familiarity, irrevocably leading to lack of respect and disregard for God himself. Consider that in modern society, people casually say, Oh my, reflexively, or use his name before D-A-M-N as a cuss word. You may still be asking what the big deal is, and that's exactly the point. Treating the name of God like every other name means one is not separating it from profane things or making it holy. It desecrates it. Hallowed be your name is an appeal for respect because victory for God's purposes on earth cannot happen in a realm where no one has any respect for him. In the Old Testament, God codified reverence for his name in the Ten Commandments, and now in the New Testament, Jesus codifies the sacredness of God's name in the start of the Lord's Prayer. This sets the tone, preps our attitudes, and immediately destroys any frivolous ideas we may have in regard to the way we address the Lord. The next line in the Lord's Prayer is, Your Kingdom Come. This is a line of adoration. So after we recognize the holiness of God's name, Jesus then tells us to pray for the coming of the kingdom of God. God already rules in the kingdom of heaven, but Jesus was telling his disciples to spread the reign of God in the natural earthly realm so that it would mimic the perfect heavenly reign of God. This is what John the baptizer was alluding to when he said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 3, 2. Of course, human beings always want a king with a kingdom, but they have always rejected God as the king of kings and often settled for less than adequate substitutes. 
For example, in 1 Samuel 8, 1-18, we see the case of King Saul. He was the one the Israelites chose as a function of their own desires, even though they were told that he would rob them blind. When Jesus came around, not only did the Jews reject him, but the Romans crucified him. These groups were not saying, your kingdom come, but get your stinking kingdom out of here. God is not running out of room in heaven and needing more space. Rather, the petition that your kingdom come is an appeal for God to pierce the hearts of those on earth to be ruled by the Messiah. It is a petition for people in this world to be moved by the Holy Spirit to have regenerated hearts, turn to Jesus, and bow before the true King. Jesus described what the kingdom of God would be like by describing the type of characters that would serve in it in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5-7. to God's kingdom is otherworldly, so even though God's people are in this world, our citizenship is not of this world. Philippians 3.20. It is important to note that the kingdom of Jesus is not something that we are all waiting for, technically speaking. That is, he's already the king with all authority in heaven and on earth. Matthew 28.18. God's kingdom is unseen, and when we pray, your kingdom come, this is a request that in every aspect of our individual lives and in the communal life of the church, we bring the invisible kingdom into the visible realm. This applies to family, relationships, evangelism, community service, devotional life, schools, jobs, finances, behavior patterns, and methods of thinking. The next line in the Lord's Prayer is, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is a line of adoration. God's will is that we obey His word and keep His commandments. Hence, when we say these words, it is of tremendous value that we know God's word, the Bible. Knowledge of the Bible drives our prayers so that God's word and thus knowledge of his will abides in us. Our expressed words thus match his word dwelling inside. Ideally, the result is that we pray God's will because we are familiar with his revealed will in the Bible. Now, does anyone know all of God's will? They do not, but that does not stop everybody from investigating. So if we pray for God's will to be done, but we don't know what God's will is, are we not shooting arrows in the dark? Not necessarily, because there is not one single flavor of God's will. Allow me to explain. From the contextual usage of will in the New Testament, Bible scholars have formulated three different types of God's will. The first is God's efficacious will. Here, God determines it shall happen, and it happens. Nothing can stop God's efficacious will because he is sovereign. As an example, Jesus told a sick and crippled man in John 5.8 to pick up his pallet and walk. Immediately, the man was healed, got up, and walked. There is nothing that this man could have done to deter Christ's will and result in command. Human beings are passive recipients when it comes to God's efficacious will. The second flavor of God's will is God's preceptive will. Here, God would like for things to happen, but you can reject that will. The preceptive will pertains to God's explicit rules and commandments. For example, Exodus 20.17 essentially says, Do not covet your neighbor's things, so it is very clear that God wills everyone not to yearn after someone else's possessions. Yet, people still covet every second of every day. 
So asking your will be done is an appeal for people to adhere to God's preceptive will. Human beings are active and responsible when it comes to God's preceptive will. The third flavor of God's will is his will as it pertains to his disposition or his general character. Here, the will of God has to do with what is agreeable or disagreeable to him. For example, it is agreeable to God that people live obedient, faithful, and productive lives. It is disagreeable to Him for people to live slanderous and indolent lives. So as it pertains to God's efficacious will, there can never be a discrepancy between what God wills and what is. However, there can be a very large gap between His preceptive will or His disposition and what we do here on earth. So, Jesus tells his disciples in the Lord's Prayer to qualify your will be done with the phrase on earth as it is in heaven. The implication is that in heaven, everything that happens fulfills the will of God. On earth, many things do not, and so the petition. In a general sense then, believers always know what God's revealed will is because the Bible is full of commands and instructions on what to do and descriptions of God's character. Believers can never know God's secret will because, of course, He's God, and His secret things belong to Him only. Deuteronomy 29.29 This does not preclude the fact that God is willing to reveal more of himself in prayer. All we have to do is ask what is ascribed in James 1.5. That text says, But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. This leads to an important point worth considering. If God's will is what ultimately will be done, then why should anyone bother praying? In other words, God is eternal and sovereign, so prayer never changes God's mind. So then, why bother pray? Because, as R.C. Sproul writes, quote, Prayer does change things, all kinds of things, because the most important thing it changes is us. As we engage in communion with God more deeply and come to know the one with whom we are speaking more intimately, that growing knowledge of God reveals to us all the more brilliantly who we are and our need to change in conformity to Him. Prayer changes us profoundly. End quote. God is the first cause of all things. This does not disqualify the fact that the secondary causes are the means by which his first cause materializes. Even more, his first cause is often directed at us and not at what is around us. This highlights one of the most overlooked aspects of prayer. Prayer has more power to change us on the inside than it does to change things on the outside. Prayer is a discourse with God and is relational. It naturally follows that its primary activity is to strengthen the bond of the relationship between the prayer and God. Consequently, Jesus never overpowered people with his will, nor did he, for example, change the external circumstance of the oppressive imperial Roman regime of the time. He invited people to draw close to him for the purpose of the relationship. In Matthew 11:28, Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If rest is to be found in a person, one can still be at peace regardless of the circumstances. 
God's sovereignty also does not nullify our individual freedom. God's sovereignty defines the contours of human freedom. There is nothing in my natural life that I could ever do, nor is there any request in my prayer life that I could ever make that would negate God's sovereignty. Within the contours that His sovereignty has defined, I am free to operate, and within this fear, prayer changes much. This highlights the point that prayer is done exclusively for our sakes. We are incapable of drawing close to God without prayer, and God's eternal will works through our individual will through prayer to satisfy the demands of His will. Take note that even Jesus, who is God, even He prayed to God the Father in order to bring events to pass. John 11, verse 38 to 44. If God's sovereignty did, in fact, nullify what we do, then there would be no reason to do anything. Pray, fast, read the Bible, worship, or be obedient. Here lies a timeless question. How do you know God's will for your life? The more I study the Bible, the more I believe that an even better question to ask is, if God does reveal His will to you, are you prepared to accept the answer? Let me give you an example. In Luke 22, 39-46, before Jesus is crucified, he prays to the Father and asks God, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. So God asks God to stop something from happening, and what is God's response? That the thing is still going to happen. Jesus was still going to be crucified. Not only that, but despite Christ's agony of sweating blood, after he prays, God sends an angel to strengthen Jesus so that he can eventually endure the thing that is going to happen, the cross. Throughout his prayer, Jesus qualified his petition with, Father, if you are willing. Oftentimes, God's answer to our petitions is simply, submit to my will. Other times, God's silence often calls us simply to wait on Him, and in this time of waiting, we may have our desires changed, our insight increased, a new revelation, or a new assurance of what God's will truly is. The pursuit of God's will through prayer may be one of the most submissive, pious searches a believer can execute in his or her walk. It may also be a search saturated with pride and conceit. Determining which scenario applies to you depends on whose will you are really looking for. Furthermore, the practical answer to the question of how you can know God's will becomes evident. You have to search for it. For example, in order to write this lesson, I began with the question, what instruction can I give to believers that delivers helpful, practical, and actionable advice on the topic of prayer? So what did I do? I prayed. I read the Bible. I wrote. I read three books on prayer. I prayed. I read some more. I read more Bible verses. I wrote again. So while God never revealed His will to me and said, Lesson number four shall be on prayer, thus saith the Lord, I know from reading the Bible that all believers should be able to relay sound doctrine, Titus 2.1, Scripture is profitable for teaching, 2 Timothy 3.16, the Word guides us in our everyday lives, Psalm 119.105, and one of the responsibilities of leaders in the church is to teach properly and with integrity, Titus 2.7-8. I am also aware that the second I begin to teach people about the Bible, I subject myself to greater scrutiny and judgment, James 3, 
so I cannot bring my B game. I cannot even bring my A minus game. I have to search, research, search, research, and then write. So why did I go through all that? Because I specifically asked God for guidance and never received an answer. But although I don't know his secret will, nor has he revealed anything personally to me, I know enough about his revealed will to guide my actions. In fact, if I ever assume that I could get a hold of God's secret will, then I've asked a question that does not concern me. In our lives, the revealed will is always where we start. For an even more practical example, let's say you're a young 20-something thinking about where to go to school or who to marry, and you are constantly praying, your will be done. At the end of the day, because God defines the contours of your will, any choice you make cannot override God's sovereignty. If you do make a choice that flirts with the limit, God always has a way of redirecting you. So while you may endlessly deliberate on whether to go to the Ivy League school in Philadelphia or the big football school down south, his revealed will is more concerned with how you conduct yourself when you get there. Similarly, when it comes to looking for a mate, people often pray and wait on God to show them who their perfect soulmate is without realizing that his revealed will induces you to pursue much more self-scrutiny than other scrutiny. The next line in the Lord's Prayer is, Give us this day our daily bread. This is a line of thanksgiving and supplication. In asking God for our daily bread, we are alerted to the fact that he is the one who provides for us each and every day. This request is rooted in the Old Testament, where God provided daily bread or manna to the people of Israel who were wandering in the wilderness, Exodus 16, 1-7. And just like it happened for the Israelites in the desert, the fact that each new day the Lord willingly provides for us keeps our frame of mind focused on the Lord as a reliable provider. Essentially, we, as the creations, are asking God to grant us something, and the scriptures tell us that He is both more than able to give and willing to give. This is a reason for thanksgiving. Moreover, in relation to God, asking for something as minute as daily bread reveals that God is wholly invested in the minutia of our everyday lives and that He wants us to depend on Him for provision. God will provide for His own. As it says in Psalm 37:25, I have been young and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his descendants begging bread. When the text says, give us this day our daily bread, this tells us something, that we cannot petition God in prayer once a month or once a year and expect that he will provide if we haven't acknowledged our daily reliance on him. Although not explicit, the implication is that we are to pray every day. Finally, if we are to pray for daily bread, then Jesus is telling us not to pray for an overabundance of bread, nor are we to be anxious about either getting more or not having enough. As Jesus says in Matthew 6, 25-26, once we have faith and trust that God will provide for us daily, we will not be anxious about tomorrow. It is within God's will, as expressed by Jesus in the Lord's Prayer, that He desires to provide daily needs, not excessive ones. So while God wants us to ask, He is not inviting us to ask for abundance, only daily bread. And, if he entreats us to be as specific as asking for a daily need, God can only answer specifically if we make a specific request. Again, as R.C. Sproul writes in his book, The Prayer of the Lord, quote, 
We have a tendency to pray in general. When we pray in general, the only way we will see the hand of God's providence is in general. End quote. The next line in the Lord's Prayer is, And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. This is a line of confession and supplication. The word for debt in Greek doesn't refer to a monetary debt, but a moral debt. This moral debt is legally owed because of sin. A holy God finds all sin offensive. Truly, Jesus has already paid the eternal price for all sins, but we make an appeal to God to forgive our sins as we inevitably commit sin and become indebted to the Lord. What truly is unsettling about asking God to forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors, is that our personal forgiveness becomes contingent upon our forgiveness of others. This places an acute emphasis not only on the vertical relationship to God, but also on the horizontal relationship to our neighbors. In Matthew 6, 14-15, Jesus says, For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. In Mark 11.25, Jesus says, Wherever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. When we pray, forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors, this forces us to realize that our relationship with God is not independent of others, but inclusive of others. In three separate places, Matthew 22, 37 to 38, Mark 12, 30 to 31, and Luke 10, 27, Jesus says, of everything we are told to do in the entire Bible, the top two commands are to love God and to love your neighbor. If someone does not repent through genuine prayer and confession and has an antagonistic attitude toward his or her neighbor, then they do so to their own detriment. As Romans 2, 5 says, Because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. The next line in the Lord's Prayer is, And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is a line of supplication. This is the only part of the Lord's Prayer where the original Greek delivers the most insight into understanding the prayer itself. The word for temptation means a trial, adversity, or putting to proof. God tempts no one, but he frequently tests his elect. Asking God to lead us not into temptation petitions him to not let adversity strike because, obviously, trials are never fun. Yet, God will test those whom he loves, Hebrews 12.6, and the purpose of the trials is to make the believer more complete and purify their righteousness. The word for evil uses a particular masculine version of the noun for evil. Hence, although the NASB translates it as deliver us from evil, the more exact translation is the evil one, or Satan. So, the New King James Version says, but deliver us from the evil one. So in this petition, Jesus is telling us that when we pray, we are to ask God not to lead us into difficult trials, but we are also to petition God to be delivered from the cunning attacks of the devil. It is impossible for humans to resist these attacks by themselves, so we pray, seeking divine protection. The next line in the Lord's Prayer is, For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. 
This is a line of adoration. The Lord's Prayer starts with God and ends with God. Here, at the end, the one praying recognizes the divine kingship of God, who is sovereign over the kingdom, who has unquestioned power, and who is to be glorified. The one praying concludes that at the end of his or her prayer, it is God's will that reigns supreme, not the person's will. To embrace this idea means that you recognize and accept that God is an eternal monarch whose system of government is a monarchy. It is not a democracy, so there is no popular opinion, nor do I get a vote on what I think is right. The Lord rules, and we gladly follow, because His eternal power enables us to be citizens of that heavenly kingdom. Citizenship in that eternal kingdom offers eternal life, something no earthly dynasty can ever provide. Because of this reality, we glorify God. In the close of the Lord's Prayer, we humbly recognize that we exist but for a season, yet it is God who rules His kingdom with power and glory forever. At the start of this lesson, I mentioned that prayer is not transactional, but transformational. In transactional relationships, one party does something as part of an exchange, like an employee working for an hourly wage. When the incentive for the transaction no longer exists, the employee stops working. So, this employee is stuck in a position we can all relate to, doing a job not for the job itself, but for the money. The work is only a means to get a paycheck, so the work has no real value to us. Typically, we are apathetic and need more incentive for more work. Here, we do to get and are driven by something on the outside. In contrast, a transformational relationship actually transforms the parties involved so that through persuasion and voluntary engagement, they begin to set their eyes on an admirable goal or idea that transcends what they are doing right now. Here, I do the work or job in pursuit of that goal, so if this requires doing more work or exerting more effort beyond the bounds of my job description, I do so cheerfully and willingly because I believe in the principle, like an eager young entrepreneur sacrificing sleep, time, and resources in pursuit of a revolutionary business idea. Here, we do because we believe and are driven by something on the inside. The stronger our belief, the more we do. In transactional prayer, all we want is something from God, but not God Himself, not His will, not His kingdom, not His power. If God then gives the something to us, the transaction is complete and we no longer have a need for Him. In this scenario, getting a prayer request is actually dangerous because it will distort our perception of the Lord and therein distort our self-image as image-bearers of Him. Prayer is the transformational medium in our relationship with God, yet the transformation is one-sided. Only we change. We change slowly and steadily to become more like Christ so that our will matches His will, our heart matches His heart, and our mind matches His mind. So, as we are transformed, all we will desire and pursue is God Himself. This is a person that transcends our circumstances. Subsequently, as elect, regenerated, repentant believers, our eyes are set on the Lord, whom we know we will glorify through prayer, and we exercise our faith in Him by prayer. This transforms us even more, drawing us closer to Him and increasing our desire to pray and fellowship with Him even more. 
In the end, the Bible teaches us in Romans 8.28 that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and those who are called according to His purpose. Those who love God faithfully and effectively pray to Him, and He uses our prayers to shape us according to His glorious purposes. In the end, when He molds us into something new, our purposes, goals, and desires change so that our new prayers will match our new vessel. Thank you for listening. For more valuable resources, including a bookstore and online Bible study, visit wcsk.org.